Hello and welcome to this week's BossCast. I'm Andrew Teacher, founder at Blackstock Consulting, which is now part of Montfort Communications. I'm joined this week by Toby Courthold, who's the chief executive of GPE, one of the most prominent figures in UK listed real estate. Toby's been at the helm of GPE for over 20 years and has been really ahead of his time with many of the things that we're going to talk about today, such as decarbonisation and fundamentally shifting the business towards a more flexible approach that prioritises customers over everything. Now, Toby, you've had a fascinating career. You began your property life in Asia. Tell us about some of your learnings along the way and tell us about how you became chief exec of what was then Great Portland Estates 20 years back. Well, I grew up in Asia, in Hong Kong, and unlike most big cities, Hong Kong's equity markets are dominated by real estate. So circa 25% of that market was property companies. So it just was in the lifeblood. Real estate was in the lifeblood of that city. And you could see it. Amazing architecture, fantastically charismatic development companies led by literal legends. And it was a very attractive idea to go into real estate. So I joined a property company called MEPC pretty much straight out of college. Yeah, yeah. And I spent 11 years there, worked with some fantastic people, James Tuckey, Robert Ware, Jamie Dundas, those sorts of characters who were big, big players in what was then a very large property company, multinational property company. Um, it was listed at that point, wasn't it? was it? listed. It was yeah, FTSE yeah. 50 when I joined it. We then ran into the early 90s recession, which was a, for me at least, it wasn't great for the company or its shareholders, but for me it was a fantastic learning experience because it became very obvious very quickly that excessive leverage at a high cost combined with excessive quantities of development at a moment in time when there was nobody to lease those developments, delivered during the thick end of one of the largest steel strikes and periods of social unrest we've seen in the UK, is a recipe for disaster. And it was a very painful experience for not just the shareholder of MEPC, but the people who work there. And I think it learned a lot during that period, but it clearly took a long time for it to recover. So for me personally, the 11 years I spent there from 91 leading to me joining GPE as CEO in 2002, were super formative. And I think some of the things that we've lived by at GPE of permanently low leverage. Mm. I was going to say, there were some prescient things that have obviously stuck and become part of your DNA. Yeah, we've also been blessed, I think, in the 20 or so years I've done it at GPE by a structurally lower level of interest rates, which has meant that there's been less consequence of a little more gearing than you might want. But nonetheless, combining high gearing and development is going to end in tears at some point. So we will never do that. Mm, mm. And you've been making pretty successful strides to even out and reduce your cost of debt over the last years anyway, haven't you? We'll always be opportunistic when it comes to looking at the cost of our leverage and we'll seek out the best routes to it. But we'll also make sure we have maximum flexibility in it. So our current average cost is in the twos. It's clearly way beneath current market, given what's happened to financing rates very recently. But nonetheless, given that our gearing is only circa 20%, it means that we have, even if interest rates have gone up and we need to go back to the markets in a couple of years' time to refinance something, even if we end up paying a far higher rate of interest per pound borrowed, it's still not going to have an enormous impact on the income statement. Yeah, and that's critical really, isn't it? So what, when you took the role, were you seeking to achieve? And how has your outlook changed in those two decades? Well, um, 2002, this is obviously, well, it it was a different world, but not totally different in some respects. 
we had a market that then was the beginnings of the dot-com bubble bursting mm. and the consequences of that. Again, I was very fortunate in working with Richard Peskin, who had been a long-standing GPE person, and he took me under his wings and taught me a lot, actually, about the ways that good property companies should be and should exist and should look like. And we refined the business from one that was spread around the UK. They'd already started that process, to be fair, of coming out of the regions. We just finished off that process to focus on central London. And we worked out pretty quickly a couple of things. Number one, yep. the gearing point I've already made. Number two, that there was a strong positive correlation around the world between specialist property companies and share price outperformance. So in real estate markets where information is everything and they're largely opaque and that margin of difference between those who know and those who don't know is huge, being a specialist counts for something. Every single asset is unique. Every single market is different to those next door to it. And so having that extra degree of knowledge gives you something that you can trade on. Hence why we really focused on being a specialist. Mm. And this was around the time that the REIT regime was really burgeoning in the States. You didn't quite have REITs for every sort of nook and cranny of the world that you do now. Hairdresser REITs, bookseller REITs, I'm joking slightly. Yeah. But, yeah. but the regime was obviously expanding and four or five years later, you would be part of that move in the UK. And we also believed that dominant capital cities around the world, and especially London, whose position as a dominant place for people to come and live and work and seek their fortunes and whatever, was in the top probably one, two, maybe three in the world. Dominant cities had a growing magnetism because they offered so much more than just a place to work. They were hugely fun places to exist. And we felt that that story of urbanization, that structural theme of urbanization was building momentum and that London was going to benefit from that. And as it opened up to the world more and more, and its geography and its language and its rule of law became more relatively important, it was set really well for a period of long and strong growth. And that's exactly what happened. So specialism mm. in London to us was a, then it was a no-brainer. And today, and well, I'm sure we'll talk about what happens next, mm. but to me at least, today it feels like it is still a no-brainer. And what have been some of the unexpected highlights and challenges over that period because you came in at the dot-com crash that was a pretty seismic moment in the early noughties you then had the gfc to contend with six years later the euro zone crisis which probably had you know a far lower impact on you than more european centered businesses but nevertheless it, it was a pretty low moment and obviously brexit would have had an impact as well so there's been several events notwithstanding the current challenges. What have been some of the highlights and how have you dealt with some of those challenges? Well, I think the uh, two things I would say. Firstly, I think that we've always tried to make sure that we have the ability, the privilege, if you like, to make our own decisions, to never put ourselves into a position where we are not able to take advantage of a set of circumstances. And if you look at the periods in which we saw most dynamic change in our fortunes, they were around those points of inflection, those points of disruption, be that the dot-com bubble bursting, certainly yeah. Lehman. Actually, the, uh, the taper tantrum, as it was then called, was very relevant as well. Brexit, curious, really curious. We thought we'd have a recession. We didn't. But equally, we haven't seen opportunity in the same way that we did after some of the earlier disruptive moments. And now with the most recent disruption around COVID, 
and what happens after COVID and what's going on in Eastern Europe at the minute. Let's see. It feels like we might be going into another disruptive moment. So that's first thing, being in a position to take advantage of circumstances such as that. Well, what think- does that mean in plain English? That means having cash reserves to do it. It means having a management team that's got freedom to act. It means having shareholder backing to do one and two, I guess all of the above, right? Bang on. Exactly. All of those, all of those, which leads nicely onto the second point I was going to raise, which is having a team of people with whom you work, who are at the top of their game, who have the mental capacity and agility to think through these issues and then act. And I've been incredibly lucky to have worked with some of the best brains and still do in the industry. And that's completely crucial. In a market that people often mistake as not being about people, but about assets, this is actually one of those markets which is all about people, fundamentally about the quality of the people you have around you. Well, I think that's probably because up until recently, that's all everyone talked about. And you personally and GP as a business was certainly one of the first to start talking about customers. Uh, and I remember that you know, during my time working with you at the BPF and you know, a number of these conversations that we had back then around how we changed perceptions of the sector were all about focusing on human beings and people. And that's something that I know is a very strong element of your own DNA again. But it's still lacking in the long tail of the industry, isn't it, if we're honest? And therein lies perhaps the next great opportunity is the differentiation between those who are thinking about customer needs and those who are thinking about real estate as an inanimate object paying four rent checks a year. Yeah, no, exactly. And another question, and I know again, without naming names, through the work that I've done over the years, and we as a business work with several of the big great estates and other institutions, and in terms of the history and heritage of Great Portland estates, that stewardship piece gets another core element of your corporate DNA, and that's also been a guiding principle. How have you made it a guiding principle rather than a restrictive principle? Good question. We were created by the Samuel family in the 50s. So we've not been around anything like as long as some of the landed estates, if you like. But I think we've had a stream running through our DNA that has always been about local responsibility to the communities in which we operate. And that that is more important, arguably today, than it's ever been before. And you can Mm. see it in the way that we address the stakeholders around us when we develop, for example, I'd like to think our customers would recognize us as being a responsible owner that they can talk to whenever they want about whatever they want. Not just us, actually, but I think the REIT sector, by and large, did a really good job of looking after its customer base during COVID. I think we all went out of our way to make sure that customers knew that we were there to help wherever we could. Mm. And I think the government didn't reciprocate with any helpful policy, but we can come on to that in a second. Uh, (laughs) But it will stand us in good stead. Yeah, and I agree with that. And I think that's something that I think we certainly talked about with Mark Allen, the boss of Landsec, on this podcast last year with Charlie Green from the office group and with other people, both in the private and the listed sector, and absolutely registered that point. But I suppose that the challenge that you have is you don't necessarily have the ear of government anymore, perhaps arguably as you did under Liz Peace when she was boss of the BPF. And I suppose the proof of that is some of the pretty poor policy making that you as a business and as a sector have been hit with over the last couple of years, particularly a lot of the moves that the government has laid on you through the pandemic and post pandemic and other tax changes and structural changes that are making it harder for sovereign investors and other institution investors to come into the space. And some of these things will help you, some of them won't. But broadly speaking, 
collectively, none of these things are hugely positive. Well, I think that the macro backdrop in which the government has been operating has probably tied their hands in many ways. But I agree with you that, for example, if you take the empty rates and rates regime more broadly, we've not got to where we wanted to get to at all. I actually think the BPF, since you mentioned them, are they're on all the right issues. I think they're addressing all of the right challenges. And I think they're making as much noise as they should be to try and address where we think we have issues. And I'm also involved with the new West End company. And one of the things that we have been shouting loudly about is tax-free shopping. And that today has seemingly been put back to where it was a few years ago, which is a huge win for the overseas shopper coming into the UK and specifically for the markets in which we operate around Oxford Bond and Regent Street for the retailers in those locations. Yeah, and that is a good win. I remember one of the first things that I did when I moved to BAA at Heathrow 12 years ago was help run a campaign to highlight how much cheaper we were than the West End, which I remember not going down particularly well with some of my old BPF members. So I'm glad that that has been equalised. But in terms of, I suppose, things like the rent moratorium, I'm guessing that doesn't necessarily affect GPE hugely, but it does clearly have an impact on other parts of the market. And the wider negativity towards real estate from policymakers doesn't seem to be changing. I think... There is a job to do to continually reinforce the message that this industry is a huge force for good and force for potential further good and change. And it doesn't help when, as you say, there are policies that are, by definition, restrictive of our ability to create change Mm. and for the good. So, yes, I agree with you there. Having said that, I understand where that policy came from and its desires to protect customers in difficult positions. But it lasted for way too long and it should have been brought off much earlier. And it did actually, ultimately did nobody any favours by leaving it there for as long as they did. And I suppose I'm just staggered that 12 years on from the Bombsite Britain campaign that I put together with you and Ian Cool and many others, that we still haven't had any movement on that. And the, the multiple promises governments have made on rearranging the rates regime have just fallen on deaf ears. Mm. They need to address it. I mean, there's no question they need to address it. And they know that. It's a difficult tax to address. It's complicated. Whereas corporation tax is easy for them to address. And as you rightly say, you know, it gets headlines. But actually, when you look behind the headlines, the numbers are not that impactful. It's more about, I think, sentiment than it is. It's trying to attract businesses to come to the UK and set up shop here and so on than it is anything else. Well, let's talk about that. I mean, I think in terms of the positive steps, you published a social value manifesto setting out your own ambitions as a business, what you do. And that was a really bold and progressive step. And I think that was certainly, from my perspective, looked like it was received well. And in terms of some of the other things that we discussed a lot on this podcast, such as sustainability and decarbonisation, we've had some of your colleagues on in the past, your sustainability head, Janine, has been on here in the past talking about this. But again, there are some really tangible things that GP has been doing, whether it's social value related, whether it's around decarbonisation, that do seem to be fantastic things that do cut through with investors, with policymakers that might be questioning the credentials of real estate firms and crucially with customers as well. What are some of the highlights, Toby, from your perspective of what you're doing to promote the circular economy and decarbonisation? 
Well, I'm really glad you picked up on that, Andy, because it really matters to us. And it matters to us because it matters to our customers. We're seeing a huge linkage between what we're saying around sustainability and the quality of our buildings and the services we offer and the appeal that they have as a result to our customers. That's a real change in the last 10, maybe a few more years that we've observed. What we're doing, well, as you say, we, we have our social impact program looking to generate 10 million per annum. We've got our sustainability programs. We've set out our net zero ambitions and our roadmap to 2030 for a few years back now. Some of the more interesting things we're doing most recently, we also, as you highlighted, set up our decarbonization fund so that we are effectively building up an amount of money. Every time we emit one ton of carbon, we put an amount of money into a fund and we use that money then to retrofit our existing assets to improve their energy efficiency and bring their carbon cost down. And most recently, we're demolishing a building in Aldermanbury Square ahead of its redevelopment. Hmm. The steel in that building we are going to reuse elsewhere in our portfolio. And in the process, rather than manufacturing new virgin steel with virgin materials, by reusing existing steel, we are saving 97% of that steel's carbon impact, which is a huge difference. Because well, again, not- most of the carbon impact of any material is emitted before it even leaves the ground. And that's one of the big things that people forget, right? Everyone talks about, oh, it's a transport cost, but actually it's, it's getting it out of the ground. It's the raw materials used to produce it and the amount of energy yeah. to make those raw materials into steel. Exactly right. And I think what we're beginning to work out, what the industry will unquestionably address, because it is an industry full of creativity, is how the circular economy can be used to create a supply chain that is there for reuse. A secondary market, yeah. For reuse, exactly, yeah. or pre-loved, as our team call it. And that is going to become a key part of this industry, especially if you're involved in any form of redevelopment or refurbishment. Yeah, and I guess the interesting challenge that I'm sure that raises for you as a business and for others will be how you get the necessary insurance warranties on those materials that you can make it all plug together, right? Yeah. In terms of the financing, in terms of all of the other mountain of legals that come even with a basic letting. So talk me through that. How have you had to square it? Because I'm guessing, and I know through, again, through work we're doing and challenges that some of our clients are having getting timber through, uh, this is something we would be talked about on this podcast before, that that's a challenge. So there must be also a pretty big challenge if you're reusing materials and having people question, well, I'm not sure I can ensure that. So how have you managed to get around that or solve the problem? So in the case of the steel, as the example, I mean, the reason it's not saving us really any money, or for that matter, much time, you have to deconstruct with real care. You then have to test all of the steel beams to make sure that they are essentially robust, clean them up properly, and prepare them for reuse. And in that process, you essentially get them validated by a number of parties, including insurers. I so think probably we're gonna, better tested than new steel would be, uh, right? Well, as well as, exactly. And I think where we're going to end up is a secondary market for materials that are passported and mm. essentially validated. And so that, that would can, mean that once there's a greater depth of market, hopefully the price of many of these checks comes down and there's automation and other technology that can just help yeah, and, and the insurance market will adjust as appropriate and as there's depth to it and you can validate and you can essentially, equivalent to the British standards, you can create the yeah. necessary hallmarks that show that it's been managed through that process properly. What else would help? Because I suppose, you know, it's fantastic that GP is doing stuff like this. This is, you know, uh, absolutely one of the most tangible examples of how the circular economy is at work in not just reducing carbon emissions, but also just saving money, right? It's 
basic fundamental fiduciary duty save some money when we yeah, can yeah. but it strikes me that some of these bigger questions around carbon sequestration or some of the other material technologies that we need to create there's no simple way that any single property company or even a single country's property sector could do that so what's your view on that how could we be speeding up some of this do we need europe or global funds to look at construction materials or should there be more r&d in these areas with a bit of government funding in them because there's lots of pockets of innovation there's some fantastic brains in the space and we're very privileged to have had many of them on this podcast over the last five years and talk about all sorts of initiatives but it strikes me that unless there's a real scalability to some of these things we're not going to move quickly enough Mm. well i think that's right i also think that we are lucky in this country to have some of the great engineering and creative brains around some of these challenges, be that, you know, green forms of the materials that we use, specifically Mm. concrete and cement. And those firms, we know they are all working flat out. Universities, especially those in and around London, are working flat out on thinking of new materials that we might be using. I think the reality is that as the economic cost of raw materials goes up, relative to reuse of existing, you will find market behaviours changing. So you will find that the circular economy will balloon. We will have a supply chain that in five years' time is completely different to that that it was 25 years ago Mm. with all sorts of opportunities for reuse. I think you will find refurbishment and the most inventive developers will find ways to reuse existing spaces. I also think the consumer and the customer is being far more demanding about the footprint, the carbon footprint of the buildings they go into, Mm. which by definition means that they will be more willing to accept reuse and refurbishment rather than new build. Plus their use of these spaces is less formal than it used to be, right? So instead of having enormous trading floors- why we're both sitting here without ties on? (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, these great big trading floors with ridiculously over-specified loading qualities and so on are changing. Mm-hmm. And that's a good segue into talking about the customers because they've changed quite a bit over the years. Obviously, the structure of the market has changed considerably since you became chief exec in terms of the nature of leases, the time frame of those leases. Well, I have no idea what the average lease length was in 2000. I'm guessing it would have been 12, 13 years, something like that. Well, interestingly, we as a business actually have in our office book, it's been, I think the longest it's been in my tenure is about seven and a half years. And that's because typically when we have built a new building and leased it, often on 20-year leases, certainly 15-year leases, we've normally then traded them on to those with a lower cost of capital than us so that we can take that capital and re-employ it in the next opportunity. So our average lease length has actually been quite short, but it is shorter today than it was 10, 15 years ago. Mm. And today it's in the fours. We quite like that. We've always quite liked that because it gives you access to that real estate to improve it more regularly. And if you think about the essence of who we are and what we do, we're all about improving real estate, you know, finding ways to create better spaces. And you need to be able to get it back to do that. And if you believe in your product and you know your customers' needs, you really understand what they're looking for, then you shouldn't be fearful of a relatively short lease. Mm. Provided that you understand the OPEX costs and the financing costs for the CAPEX requirements to make those buildings fit for purpose when those shorter leases expire. Absolutely. And that's what we do. I mean, that is the absolute essence of great real estate today. It's knowing what your customer wants and finding a way to create spaces that are going to be magnets for their people to come and work in. 
Mm. So let's talk about those changes then. In terms of customers now, what are the questions you're being asked going into 2023 that you weren't being asked in 2002, that you weren't being asked when we first met in 2006, that you weren't being asked pre-COVID in 2019? Well, I think in the lead up to COVID, what you found was that quite a lot of the questions were being asked then are very similar to today. So it's just they're louder today. So lots of sustainability questions. We think that the leaders of our customers had already worked out that the talent that they were looking to recruit and hire into their businesses was asking them questions about their philosophies on some of these issues, their own purpose, their own mm. position. And, 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 and I think just to clarify that point, you've always had, largely because of where your portfolio is located, mm. you've always been at the forefront of having big TMT occupiers that typically are the sorts of firms that have those sorts of employees. Yeah, and they've always been, not always, but a lot of them have been very forward-thinking in understanding the challenges that the younger community coming out of the colleges were looking for, and mm. that's very relevant today. So those questions were there. They're louder today than they were back then. And sustainability is right at the top. The one that's particularly louder is clearly health and well-being and the way that a building and the spaces within that building can help their people live a healthy and better life. Mm. And what are some of the steps that you've had to take then in response to those questions? What does the business have to do? And to what degree has that meant difficult decisions? Well, I think first thing that it's meant is that those buildings that we didn't think could be made fit for those purposes would no longer form part of our future. So if we were not able to create the sorts of spaces that we thought our customers were looking for, be that health and well-being driven or sustainability driven, mm. we would have sold them or we wouldn't have bought into them to refurbish or redevelop, point number one. Point number two is the way that we talk our language and think about the forward returns of our buildings are now much more orientated around sustainability than ever before because it's become an economic question as much as it has a moral question and so on. So that's very live. And number three, the services we put into our buildings today are way more customer orientated. So for example, when you come to a new GPE building, you will have access to our app, Sesame, which allows you to come into the building, to leave the building, to control the building services. It has a community within it. You can buy and sell services in the immediate vicinity. So you can book restaurants, you can read newspapers, you can go to the theater, you can do all sorts of things through our app. And from that, we learn a lot more about the way our buildings are being used. We can help our customers save energy and mm. lower their energy costs through it. We, for example, created energy councils in every one of our buildings, which is essentially a group of customers and then our own energy teams to help them. So we're doing a huge amount that were simply issues that weren't even being considered 10 years ago mm. that we now know are the ways in which we are going to help keep our customers happy and therefore with us. Mm. And in terms of the data piece, that is something that we talk about a lot here. And it's something that, again, the wider real estate sector seems now to be getting to grips with. But the ability to use analytics to inform better decision making, to reduce OPEX costs, to encourage stickier tenancies. Mm. What difference is it making in your business being able to have real-time analytics on these sorts of things and what do you think the opportunity is over the next few years in that area 
Well, I think it's worth just remembering the context here, which is that we have somewhere around about 500 customers. So you're never going to get the vast quantities of data. Yeah, it's not a club card, it's Tesco. Correct, right? exactly. So by definition, it's a relatively small data set, and it's probably not fair to say it's a proxy for the market at large, right? Mm. But nonetheless, it has real value because, as I say, it shows us how our buildings are being used, which in turn allows us to have a different level of conversation with them about what we can do for them mm. to help use, improve and use the buildings even better and improve the buildings even further. But also, if you're transacting one of those buildings, if I'm whoever I am with my lower cost of capital acquiring any building from you, I've then got a totally transparent footprint of everything that's going on. I mean, it's a bit like you buy a car and you've got a full service warranty. I would appreciate it's a bit different, but it's if you're buying a car of one of the top brands and you go to the Lexus dealer or the Audi dealer rather than bob up the road, yeah. and you've got that false transparent service history, yeah. that car's worth more money, right? And if you come out of that showroom having had a good experience, chances are you'll go back to it next time as well. And that brand loyalty point is a key aim of us investing in this sort of technology and understanding what our customer needs so that they so stay you, Mercedes, us. BMW, Lexus, where do you say? Any of the above, all, all <laughs> great brands, but, but the same basic thesis applies, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. And in terms of the market you know we'd be daft to have the boss of gp here and not ask about the future of work because it's let's be honest it's the only thing on the dinner table for most c-suite currently now you as a business you've always arguably not arguably but i think you have always been ahead of some of these big macro trends whether it's what we've discussed around finding older buildings and repurposing them with better sustainability credentials or or even foreseeing some of these changes around customers wanting more flexible space. And that's something you've staked your reputation on, your business's reputation on with Flex. And your business has, has pivoted wholesale into this new wind. Mm. Tell us about that decision-making process and give us a bird's eye view now of what that landscape looks like. Okay. So we've really identified two principal areas where we think the seam is richest, if you like, the customer seam. Number one, absolute best-in-class, larger HQ-style buildings, and think of our most recent delivery on that front being in Hanover Square uh, yeah. or 50 Finsbury Square, for that matter, which we're just about to finish, where in both cases, by and large, pre-leased, appealing to larger corporations who will stay there for longer timeframes. And we think there is a serious supply shortage two, three, four years out from now, which means that if you have that product and you are able to build the most sustainable variants on that theme that you possibly can, I think you're going to pre-lease them, especially if you are a counterparty like us with credibility who's going to look after you properly. I think you'll pre-lease them. The second theme that we think is richest at the moment is, as you describe it, the flex end of the spectrum. Just to be clear what that is, these are floors, not desks or rooms in buildings. They're whole floors or whole buildings that we lease to corporates who want inherently more flexibility and they want just an easier experience. So they come to us, they take a pre-fitted space and by and large, they buy services from us as well. So it's owned so and managed by GP. Completely look after them and make their lives just fundamentally easier. And the typical unit size there is two and a half to 3,000 square feet. So you imagine you're taking only two and a half thousand square feet. The last thing you want to do is hire a bunch of people 
who have to do the fit out for you. You'd far rather. Oh, I've been that guy for 10 years, Toby. Until I sold my business, I was that guy. And you know, one day you're dealing with somebody from a large private equity house and the next minute you're dealing with the plumber because somebody's put something nasty down the loose. And how much easier it would it be <laughs> to hand all that nastiness over to people like us? Well, absolutely, and yes, absolutely. So It'd be that, someone from GPE to sort out the toilets any exactly, day of the week. <laughs> that thesis is, I think, it's been happening in every other walk of life. And our industry has been slow to take it up, Mm. but it's taking it up now and it's happening in scale. And if I look at our leasing, the traction of our leasing in that end of the market at the moment is the strongest of any market we're seeing. And we are leasing our spaces really quickly. We're leasing them to bigger companies than you might imagine. So these are not startups. They're taking three to 4,000 square feet. They're typically leasing them Mm. on two to four year terms. They're fully serviced. And they are paying us for the privilege of giving all of the aggro to us. And our view is that if you're not in that game, you are missing one of the most interesting stories of the current real estate market. And we think that it is going to become, if not already is, the norm, sub about 5,000 square feet. And Mm. that is the majority of the West End unit size. So it's an inevitability. It's something that I think is more than here to stay. It's a really exciting part of the market. It does require a different skill set. And so we've been working hard to build up that skill set and to get the infrastructure in place to allow us to do it really well. Mm. And I think we are. But that theme of operationalization is something that, again, probably began arguably in the residential space, purpose-built student accommodation, one of those early sectors, certainly UK market that's driven that. And I think it is something that folks like yourselves are now pioneering with some gusto. I mean, just drawing things to a close, Where do you see that going in terms of the current pricing? Because I guess there's a clear price premium for that service. You Mm. know, and some will say, well, it's more expensive. You would say actually it's better value because you're not having to outsource the cost of plumbers Mm. and painters and decorators and all these other things that I know as a business owner, are not just an administrative headache, but a financial one and a time-sucking one. So I think we accept that. But what about pricing in the wider market? And given that obviously, you know, you're not a regional owner of secondary tertiary offices but some people will be looking at the market right now and thinking are we now going to see in offices what we saw in 2010 in retail are we seeing this genuine massive bifurcation but is there a level of the broker community standing with their fingers in their ears not wanting to accept reality on pricing yeah well just on pricing for a second, you answered the question, I think, very well. It is better value because we can almost certainly buy my job the, at GP sources. Well, we can buy <laughs> there you go. We can buy that material better than you can, because we can conglomerate, we can aggregate. So we should be able to do it for you at a better cost and quicker, and the quality will be exceptional. And the other thing I would say on cost is that the average London business pays around about seven to ten percent of its salary cost in rent. Okay, so it's a significant cost, but it's a fractional cost. And you've worked out that it's much more important to keep your people happy, because they are 90% of your overhead, right, than it is to skimp on the quality of the space you put them in. Because if you put them in bad space, they might just leave you. And they are your asset. They are your future. And without them, your business is in trouble. So I think the propensity of companies to put themselves into the best space they can afford and they think they can afford is only rising. That, I think, is a structural theme that is here to stay. And the evidence today would suggest that even in the face of all of the macro noise that we're living through, we are still leasing space at near record rents quickly 
in our flex business and we are doing it to covenants and quality businesses that are not starting up over the last couple of months. They've been around for years. And I think this is the future of that scale of space and it's here to stay. Hmm. Final question. And you know, you've been in the job for a while, Toby. You haven't aged today. Brilliant. Love to have your fitness regime. You'll have to share those tips with us after the podcast. What have you got left to achieve and what do you want to achieve and what can we expect in the market Save over the next 10 years, let's keep it wide open. Well, I mean, I think we're living probably in one of the most exciting periods in our industry we've ever seen. You've got structural change everywhere. You've got societal change, which is moving all sorts of dials and making us think about how our customers want us to behave and what they want from us. There are dynamics like social impact, sustainability, these things that you know we knew existed, but we weren't as clear about how important they were until quite recently. And then you've got a macro backdrop, which is very difficult to read. So I think as a leader, the challenges we face are as interesting and demanding, by the way, as ever they've been. And as a result, we're looking at the next few years of, I think, extraordinarily interesting. And I also think opportunity-rich real estate markets in which businesses that are ahead of these games that we've described today, I think will do really well. And that's, it's empowering, it's exciting, it's inspiring. And when you're surrounded by the quality of people that we are at GPE, it's a huge lot of fun as well. Mm. Well, fantastic. We'll we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for taking the time. Toby Courtold, boss of GPE. Fantastic to see you. And you can subscribe to PropCast by heading to Apple, Spotify, SoundCloud, Amazon, wherever you get your podcasts from. Please do subscribe, search PropCast, and we'll see you again very soon. And you can check out some of the links to many of the fantastic projects Toby's mentioned during this podcast on the accompanying article on propertyweek.com. Take care, and we'll see you again soon.